0: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.
1: This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio.
2: I'm Sarah Fenske. Would you prefer that we pay the bills and keep the doors open? or would you prefer that the doors get shuttered and no one get an educational opportunity?
1: Donors are suing Webster University over its plans to make their restricted funds unrestricted. Do they have a good chance of prevailing? And neighbors are suing the city of St. Louis over a Sudanese couple that's been squatting on the sidewalk in front of their home. Can they use the courts to force the city to take eviction action? And what does Justice Samuel Alito have to say about a case that Missouri lost and that the Supreme Court chose not to hear? Well, my distinguished panel has answers to all those questions and more. Today is our legal roundtable, and joining me in studio are three expert attorneys. And that includes one of the founding members of this roundtable. That's Bill Fryvogel. He's an attorney and a professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Bill, welcome back. Thanks. And we're also joined today by Connie McFarlane-Butler. She's a former partner at Armstrong Teasdale, and in 2010, she founded her own firm, the Law Office of Connie McFarlane-Butler. That's in Florissant. Connie, welcome back. Thanks again. And today, we're also joined by Erin Luker. She was previously a public defender for St. Louis County and a prosecuting attorney for the state of Missouri. And she's now at the firm Seday harper Westoff. She focuses on employment law. Erin, welcome back. Thank you. So I'm so glad all of you are here today. There is a lot of legal matters in the news. I'm excited to be able to discuss them with people who actually know what they're talking about, (laughs) uh, which is not true of everybody who wants to argue about these things. And there's a case in particular that has my attention because this is one that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. A Missouri woman named Jean Finney recently won a victory there. But Justice Samuel Alito wasn't happy about it. Finney worked for the Missouri Department of Corrections. She'd begun a same-sex relationship with a colleague's former wife. Well, the colleague apparently started harassing Finney. So Finney sued their mutual employer. She said she was discriminated against, and she won. But then the state appealed. And this appeal sort of focused on a key question. Finney's lawyers had asked jurors about their religious beliefs regarding LGBTQ relationships. Jurors who said they thought they were a sin were struck from the jury. That's even though they told the court they would be able to put that aside, they could be fair. So after Finney won, the Missouri Department of Corrections appealed. They said the lower court erred by striking those jurors for cause. The appeals court declined to hear their appeal, and now... So did the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, normally, when the Supreme Court turns something down, that's the last we hear of it. But, Bill, Justice Alito weighed in on this one, even though the court didn't take the case.
3: He did. Uh, I mean, he actually agreed with the court not to take the case for sort of technical reasons because there was a separate uh, Missouri law issue that would have made it sort of confusing. But, uh, yes, he thinks, he, he says that he believes that uh, th- that the the Constitution prohibits discriminating against jurors based upon racial status or, or I mean, religious status or, re- or religious belief, uh, which is contrary to what the Missouri Court of Appeals said, and and so uh, he felt very strongly about that. What one reason that he so he wrote a five-page uh, concurrence. Con- Occurring that they wouldn't hear the case because it was too sort of confusing from the state issue, but saying that this is a serious issue that the court should eventually take up and make and make clear on. But you know, the thing that got people's attention in, in what he wrote was uh, where he complained about the same-sex marriage decision Obergefell.
1: Yeah,
3: uh, he said. He, he said, see, I was right. Yeah, uh, here's, here's
1: the quote. He says, uh, the holding exemplifies the danger that I anticipated in Obergefell versus Hodges, namely that Americans who do not, do not hide their adherence to traditional religious beliefs about homosexual conduct will be, quote, labeled as bigots and treated as such by the government. Those are some pretty strong words.
3: Right. And, and it made people think, well, he's signaling uh, that the Supreme Court could go back and reconsider. Obergefell. Uh, in other words, the constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And uh, there are only two justices who are in the majority in Obergefell who are still on the court, um, and uh, uh, Sotomayor and Kagan. Um, so yeah, all, all the conservatives who are on the court and were the four dissenters are still there. Yeah. And then with some reinforcements. So uh, people saw that as being sort of a threat.
1: Yeah, so this has people on the national level sort of looking at these tea leaves going, "Uh uh-oh. But I want to take it back to the Missouri level here, because this is a real Missouri woman who filed this case. Erin, at its heart,
4: this is an employment case. Absolutely. Uh, And and in this case, the plaintiff's sexual orientation and her same-sex relationship were at the heart of the claim of employment discrimination against the Department of Corrections. So this was not uh, a case where the plaintiff's attorney in jury selection was reaching outside the bounds of the factual issues at heart. And in jury selection, the key is for the courts and for both the plaintiffs and defendants to sit an impartial Jurors. So identifying those key issues that may have an impact based off of personal beliefs or identities is key to sitting a fair jury. So we've all heard about these cases where, say, somebody's
1: accused of sexual assault, they're going to ask jurors, has this happened to you? Connie, do you think it's fair game to ask jurors, what does your church think about these issues, which it sounds like this is how the attorney began this line of questioning with these jurors?
2: Well, I think the more appropriate question would be, how does the individual veneerman feel about these specific issues? The goal at the end of the day, if you're representing the plaintiff in this case, or the petitioner in, or plaintiff in this case, is to ensure that you have individuals who are not automatically biased. Uh, is your belief system that? Uh, such that uh, you believe that homosexuality is a sin. It's an abomination before God. And because of that belief system, you can't get to the core issue in this case as to whether or not the person has been discriminated against. Or will that belief system lead you to believe that, ah, well, she deserved what she got in going to work and starting this same sex affair with uh, the former spouse of a co worker? So ultimately, at the end of the day, you're trying to seat uh, uh, an, uh, an unbiased. And a fair jury panel. So, that is a very fair question to ask when attempting to uh, impanel a jury so say
1: the juror says yeah well my church does teach me that homosexuality is a sin this is something these jurors expressed but I'm not gonna judge this case any differently I promise I'm gonna be fair and some of these jurors to their credit they said well you know yes my church considers this a sin but I know everybody sins. I go around being jealous that's also a sin would it then be fair
4: to strike those jurors for cause Aaron, what does the law say about that Uh, So the law has the court take into consideration the totality of the answers noted by the jurors. So what typically happens in a jury selection is that questions from a counsel will be posed to the jurors, they'll have an answer, and then uh, the opposing counsel gets to try to rehabilitate those jurors if they want them to stay and not be struck for cause. Uh, And so what happened in this particular case is that jurors made an answer that uh, made them eligible or arguably eligible for a strike for cause. And there was an attempt to rehabilitate those, those jurors. And in that attempt to rehabilitate, yes, some of them said, I believe sin is, you know, everybody sins and that uh, I can set those aside and be fair and impartial. But the court and the judge took a look at the totality of the circumstances, which is what they've been instructed to do, and found within the answers that were provided during the entire selection process, those jurors should be struck for cause.
3: Of course, the judge said he actually believed them. That they could be fair, and and said he w- so he was only doing it to be uh, cautious, because he could get a jury that didn't have any potential issues. Um, I think the Sup- I think this could go uh, this issue could go to the Supreme Court, and I think In a different case and a different case, and I think uh, Alito could have his his win because the you know, this court is very. Very much on the side of uh, uh, takes the position that that uh, the government cannot discriminate against a person based upon religious belief.
1: yeah. I'm sometimes very hard on judges on this show. I'll be like, how can they do this? But I got to say, I have some sympathy for a judge in something, (laughs) in a case like this. It's like, do you err on the side of saying, well, I should probably get rid of this juror who could later, you know, cause this to be struck down? Or do you say, oh, I'm going to get rid of this juror, and then this ends up getting struck down and Samuel Alito is weighing in. What would you do if you were the judge in this situation, Connie? Would you have let these jurors stay?
2: Well if they were sufficiently rehabilitated uh... because finney's attorney asked questions and and, uh, and of course opposing counsel came back and rehabilitated them and they said i can be fair and i can be impartial uh, uh, if they're sufficiently rehabilitated then possibly but the other component of this is that when you're uh... uh... uh selecting a jury initially you have challenges for cause where you provide a specific reason to the court for why a person should be struck from the panel but then after your challenges for cause you have your peremptory strikes where an attorney can strike a person for any particular reason as long as it's clear that the person isn't striking everyone just because of race or just because of religion if there's a sufficient enough reason for striking the attorney could circle back around and strike those exact same people
1: okay so they could have left that person for a different sort of challenge and it probably would have been much easier to then discard these jurors absolutely I had read somewhere that you know you could you could just discard a juror if you felt like they were glaring at you. Is that that's an accurate thing, Erin? Uh,
4: that is accurate for preemptory challenges, but there's a limited amount of preemptory challenges that attorneys can make in any kind of given trial. And so attorneys are strategic in trying to pose the correct questions and, and elicit the correct answers so that they can move to strike for cause, because that is unlimited. And that is all within the sole discretion of the court. So when we think about the standard for peremptory challenges and what the Basis for those peremptory challenges are we think of bats and inf- often we think of uh, challenges and discrimination and opportunities for discrimination based off of race. That is not the same standard we apply to strikes for cause because that is within the court's discretion. Mm. And I think it's important to note that uh, our Missouri Constitution already says that no person shall, uh, on account of their religious persuasion or be- or belief, be disqualified from serving as a juror. Uh, the Attorney General's petition to the Supreme Court uh, didn't cite to Article One, Section Five of the Missouri Constitution, and I think this is key because we have to balance that with also the protections and rights that nobody who expresses an opinion on the case in controversy uh, may may be sat as a juror, uh, and so so that's a balancing act that is given in the hands of the court uh, for these motions for strike.
1: Missouri also raised an interesting issue in its attempt to get the U.S. Supreme Court to look at this, which didn't work. Uh, but this is a quote from their brief. They say, in fact, the absence of clear precedent on this issue may be enabling trial attorneys to evade Batson. In nearly every case involving a strike based on religion, the jurors struck is a racial minority, raising the question whether jurors in some cases are being struck for religion as a pretext for race. That this is basically a way to get rid of black jurors. And we know that having all white juries in Missouri really has been an issue. Bill, is this just the state of of Missouri (laughs) trying to raise this issue in a way that might get some more Supreme Court justices on its side, or is this a legit question here?
3: I read that as very much reaching, because I I didn't see any kind of evidence that that was true, that their factual assertion that most of these people struck for religious uh, uh, beliefs are, in fact, minorities. I didn't see any proof. Uh, it was just like out of nowhere. And so no, I I I, I don't think that had <laughs> He had much
2: traction. Connie, I see you shaking your head along with Bill here. It, it, a, absolutely. It it was a reach and it left me kind of scratching my head and 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 as to where this was coming from and you know and as an African American, I was just sitting there this mo- morning pondering what is it about my religious beliefs that goes hand in hand with me being African American. So I didn't see where that argument was coming from.
1: Okay, they did not build a strong case there no, as far no, as the two of you are concerned. Okay. So one one other case that involves the U.S. Supreme Court, I, I want to just touch on briefly here. This was another loss for the state of Missouri. In this matter, Missouri wanted to intervene in a case that involves a state offering protection to people who ship abortion drugs from blue states, where abortion is legal, to red states, where it isn't, states like Missouri. These are telemedicine abortion shield laws. They promise to protect doctors and others who are sending abortion pills across state boundaries. The laws stipulate that officials in these blue states will not cooperate with another state's effort to investigate or penalize the providers. The New York Times calls that, quote, a stark departure from typical interstate practices of extraditing, honoring subpoenas, and sharing information. Missouri tries to intervene in this case. They get shot down. Bill, this is a conservative court. Why do you think they didn't let Missouri in the room on this one?
3: Well, I I mean, this, this involves, you know, that that case is going to be argued next month about um, uh, uh, Mifepristone and its approval by the FDA. That's what they wanted to. Uh, that's what they wanted to uh, file a brief on, and were denied by the Supreme Court the, the ability to do that. I think they can still uh, send it uh, their their views that, as a guess. friend of the court. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Um, you know, I just think that it was like a little bit too far off of of the the main issue. you know another Missouri interesting Missouri uh, uh, part of that is that uh, Aaron Hawley is the main lawyer in that Mephapristone Stone case. That, and there was this great story in Politico last week that it was titled uh, uh, Josh uh, the Show Pony, Aaron the Workhorse. Pointing out that that she was involved in the Dobbs case overturning Roe versus uh, Wade, she was involved in that Colorado case uh, where the person didn't want to design a wedding invitation for a person who was gay, and and now she's the lead attorney on the briefs in in the uh, Mephapristone case.
1: Is she? Erin Hawley is a legal powerhouse. She is making things happen, whether or not people agree with her. And I imagine there's many people in Missouri that do. Erin, um, do you read that right? It's the same, uh, sort of the same thing here where Missouri's just trying to, to jump in a bit too far.
4: Well, Missouri is is does have, I think, a a, a dog in this fight, if you will, uh, in the sense that they are being affected by uh, these medical providers mailing prescription um, drugs across state lines. The problem is they they sought to join this cause too late. Mm. the The plaintiffs or the party who's been harmed in the case before the Supreme Court right now are medical providers and individual doctors, and this is important because there's a real question as to whether. Those individuals have standing, uh, and standing is, of course, uh, fundamental to being heard in front of the Supreme Court or any federal court. Uh, and so, at coming in at this late in the game is is improper, and 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 so that's why you know the United States Supreme Court uh, denied that petition. Do I think we're going to see another case with these states? Uh, almost certainly. And would it be a more expedited process to allow them to join? Probably, but it's just improper and it doesn't follow the mechanisms we have set out in the Constitution. So you may have questions about what our panel is talking
1: about today. You can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. We are talking, of course, today to our legal roundtable. That is Aaron Luker. We're also joined by Bill Freivogel and Connie McFarland Butler. And when we come back, we'll talk about donors suing Webster University. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Sarah Fensky. I'm in for, in today for Elaine Shaw because today is our legal roundtable. Once a month, always the last week of the month, we get together and talk about the law and talk about specifically some court cases here in Missouri that have caught our attention. I have three top attorneys who are joining me today as we're doing that, and one of them is Connie McFarland-Butler. She's a former partner at Armstrong Teasdale, um, and since 2010, she has been running the law office of Connie McFarland-Butler in Florissant. We're also joined today by Erin Luker, uh, previously a public defender, also previously a prosecuting attorney. Both sides there. She's now at the firm today, Harper Westoff, where she specializes in employment law. And last but never least, uh, joined today by Bill Freivogel, an attorney and professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. So, having Bill here today, perfect time to talk about higher education. A number of donors have sued Webster University. I'm glad that Bill's University is not dealing with what Webster's dealing with cuz Bill this is this is some tough stuff.
3: Yeah, but we got falling enrollments and, you know, fiscal problems too. Maybe just not quite as bad as Webster.
1: Yeah, it is a hard <laughs> time across higher education. So Webster particularly under the gun. These donors gave money earmarked for scholarships. Now the university is in a serious money crunch. It wants to use the scholarship money to satisfy a liquidity ratio required by one of its loans and maybe also to pay some of its bills. These donors aren't happy. They said these were restricted funds. Connie, would they have a good case uh, against Webster University for how the university now intends to use this money?
2: Well, the university recently filed its petition to remove restricted funds from certain accounts or from certain funds from certain accounts uh, with St. Louis County uh, Circuit Court. And uh, many of the donors have filed in and filed opposition to that petition that uh, that was filed in St. Louis County. Because
1: Webster Uh, has to kind
2: of start this in a court. That's how this works. Right. The legislature anticipated, I mean, there's actual statute out there. The legislature anticipated that there might be situations where a university would have these funds that were earmarked and restricted, and there might come a time where they might need to use those funds that were in a restricted account. And so, yes, the university has to initiate the filing of that petition under state statute under the statute, uh, the, the university can petition the court to remove those restricted funds if the gift that is given, uh, if the purpose has now become unlawful, impracticable, or if it's impossible to achieve the goals that are set out in that donation, or if it has become wasteful. And the, uh, the university submits the petition, and then the court at that time determines whether or not it is no longer feasible to use the gift as initially anticipated by the donor. Uh, Do these donors have a right to be angry? Absolutely, they do have a right to be angry. Many of them have donated hundreds of thousands of dollars, earmarked for certain purposes, endowed in the names of, in one case, in the name of a son that had recently passed away, of a mother who had died and had previously been a, um, a student there at Webster. So absolutely, they have the right to be angry. But clearly, the state anticipated that this is something that could potentially happen whether or not these donors were advised when they signed on these endowment contracts on the dotted line that this was something that could potentially happen uh probably not this wasn't was wasn't something that was probably illuminated for them or advised to them that this is something that could potentially happen but i'm sure that you know webster didn't anticipate that they would lose millions of dollars annually uh, and have a, a credit rating of, equivalent to that of junk bond. So,
1: yeah, I mean they are more than $125 million in debt. So you right. are not exaggerating there, Connie. Right. Yet, Aaron, you think there maybe is some problem with what what Webster's trying to do? This isn't so simple that they can just take the money and, and use it however they want to use it.
4: Well, typically with restricted endowment funds, especially those that are earmarked for specific purposes like research or scholarships, a university needs to exhaust all of their options before seeking to reclassify those, those donors' money mm-hmm. as unrestricted so then they can use it for other purposes. It's just not clear at this point whether the university has made a showing that they've exhausted all those other possibilities. And I think that's, that's one of the issues in this case.
1: Okay. Bill, you—I think you have some sympathy, maybe, for Webster here.
3: <laughs> I, I i wouldn't go that far, but—but—but but, uh, but I do think that that word, you know, that if the university can show it's impracticable to 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 not dip into the funds, that that's a pretty broad word. And the Missouri her Attorney General, uh, at least initially, didn't seem to indicate any uh, plans to you know, to get in to get involved but you know that that word about exhaustion you know whether whether webster has exhausted all possibilities uh the 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 family that's been out in front uh on this the schreiber family uh said uh, direct uh, directly addressed this it said exhaustion we got a letter the day before they filed suit yeah Uh, How can they say that that they've exhausted all efforts? So, and I think Schreiber may have been on the board of trustees and said right, and warned Webster. You know, we're we're in trouble here. Yeah,
1: I mean, before they got one hundred and twenty-five million dollars in debt, uh, they were paying some of these administrators quite handsomely, and I believe Schreiber was one of the people saying, "Don't do this." He warned them. Uh, It doesn't sound like they listen. It's interesting. Some of these donors have already settled their cases or dropped their opposition. They may see writing on the wall impracticable. That's a tough term to try to. it, It maybe gives enough flexibility one could easily lose.
2: Well, I, I think if you've lost $160 million over the course of the past few years, and, um, and what's the number? I believe it's uh, $37 million for the 2022-2023 school year. Uh, I, I think that the, an argument can be made, uh, would you prefer that we pay the bills and keep the doors open? Or you, would you prefer that the doors get shuttered and no one get an educational opportunity?
1: Yeah, Well, changing gears here, let's talk about another case that's, I don't know, this is also very sad in some ways. A high school football player is suing Rockwood Schools. He says he was sexually harassed and hazed by teammates for two years and that administrators at Eureka High School failed to stop it. He says he reported the incidents to the football coach, the principal, a school counselor. Let's presume he
4: was telling the truth here. Erin, what kind
1: of duty would they then have to stop this?
4: Absolutely. Schools must take effective remedial action to prevent harassment and discrimination perpetrated by other students. So, the Missouri Human Rights Act actually allows students to sue school districts for unlawful discrimination by denying the students benefit of their schools if it's based on their race, sex, or another protected trait. Um, so, students who sue school districts for discrimination by alleging that they are, were harassed have to show that uh, this was a protected trait that uh, was the cause of that harassment and that it was a contributing factor and that the school failed to promptly and effectively respond to claims of harassment, which denies them the benefit of that school. And in this case, uh, you know, uh, the allegations in the petition show at least multiple attempts for intervention um, from the student's mother with the school district and just an ineffective intervention by the school repeatedly over the course of several months. Uh, So this is uh, certainly a case well within the Missouri uh, Human Rights Act. Hmm.
1: It's interesting. It sounds like the district tried to do some things. Uh, they had a safety plan in place. Um, you know, this person, the, the one of the juniors who allegedly assaulted this, this poor young man was told to have no contact with him. The locker room was supposed to be fully supervised. Sometimes you wonder, is it possible for districts to stop something if they've got some student who's just determined to harass here? Connie, where does, the, where does the legal standard fall in that?
2: Well, I guess my question when I was reviewing this was, you know, why wasn't the student who was harassing removed? uh the the school did make a concerted effort so i will give rockwood's you know uh, some applause uh they did put in place a safety plan uh for this kid after uh the mother advised them of what was happening uh they did uh, indicate that uh that the locker room where many of these uh, occurrences happened uh, should be fully supervised, which I'm not quite sure why the locker room wasn't fully supervised. Beforehand, a
1: question there, but yeah.
2: <laughs> they did, did put in place that the locker room was to be fully supervised, and they did assign a counselor to the student who had uh, suffered this sexual harassment. And, and, and on two separate occasions, the school district actually amended the safety plan attempting to, you know, counter some of the issues that had arisen after the initial safety plan had been put in place. So, the, you know, this wasn't an attempt where the school just simply turned a blind eye and didn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, Except
3: then, they didn't kick him off the football team, the perpetrator. He's apparently a good player. <laughs> made me but, wonder if he was the quarterback. Right.
2: It
1: seems like that might be the one thing that would explain everything. Right. I have no idea if that's the case, but I'm suddenly like, wait a minute. It's all snapping. It's like a, some of these, these movies I've seen about high school. I can, I can suddenly imagine. Yeah,
2: the student's behavior was pretty egregious. According so, to this lawsuit, uh, for uh, sure. According to the lawsuit, if it is true, so you know it is you know baffling why that student was not removed.
1: So changing gears entirely. Uh, in the past month, an unusual lawsuit was filed against a pair of ref- a pair of refugees from Sudan. They've set up a kind of camp in front of a single family home in South St. Louis. The neighbors have been at their wits' end. The city has said it has repeatedly offered services. Um, but this couple of refugees, they haven't been willing to leave. And now Beavis Shock, who is sometimes a panelist on this show, he is suing on behalf of the neighbors. They have sued the city of St. Louis, they've sued John Doe, and they've sued Jane Roe. They don't know the names of these refugees, but that's their way of of sort of incorporating them into this lawsuit. The goal is to force the city to take action. Bill, do you think this lawsuit has a good chance of succeeding?
3: Well, it may. I mean, I was surprised in sort of like delving into this a little bit more. There's actually... uh you probably don't want to hear about the Supreme Court again, but they got a they got a case. Next, I, I will
1: grant permission.
3: <laughs> they have a case that they're hearing next month uh, uh, on it's from Oregon, uh, and actually the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the appeals court out there, uh, has ruled that if th- that it violates the Eighth Amendment for a uh, a city to uh, punish a person based upon their. Involuntary status as being homeless, um, cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, I mean, that's a, that sounds like a stretch to me. There's a judge out there who's sort of well known, old Scanlon, who said, "Come on, give me a break." But um, but that's the st- that's the state of things right now. So yeah, I think I think the suit has a good chance. But I mean, if it ran into that kind of constitutional issue. We'll we'll see what the Supreme Court does. I doubt if they'll buy it.
1: Yeah, I mean, this seems like just a tough issue. Nobody would want to be squatting in a tent on a sidewalk on the city of St. Louis. Like, that's a a tough way to live that people would not choose if if everything was right. At the same time, I'm sure this is very hard for the family that has
2: this tent in front of them. Connie, do you think they'll be able to, to prevail here? Well, um, the petition was recently filed, and so the summons uh, for all of these individuals was just issued. So we're really in the, the starting phases of it. Uh, but Bevis has requested a jury trial in this matter, and if you look at the comments uh, following, uh, you know, uh, concerning this story on the internet, it's overwhelming. Almost a hundred percent of the comments of the individuals who respond to it, they side with the homeowners. Mm-hmm uh... you know this tent although it is on a public sidewalk it is directly in front of these individuals home home uh, individuals It's uh, uh, two persons uh... in front of their home uh, these individuals are using the uh, uh, a sewer drain uh, in order to uh, use the restrooms. There are rats around their encampment, uh, and these individuals uh, feel don't feel safe going on their front porch or having people in their yard because of this encampment that is sitting directly in front of their house. So, if this goes to a jury, I think any homeowner is going to be highly sympathetic, uh, and and I think that there may be some traction because Beavis is. Kind Kind of played this as an inverse condemnation type case, mm-hmm. and with indo- inverse condemnation, when a when private property is taken or damaged without compensation as a result of a nuisance operated by an entity that has power of eminent domain. Oh, so these property owners are arguing that their property has been damaged by the city of St. Louis because they've made multiple multiple reports to the city, asking the city to intervene asking the city to evict these people off of this public sidewalk and because the city refuses to act or has failed to act their property values have significantly declined and they do not believe that they're in a position where they can sell their home. So Beavis might actually get a little traction Mm -hmm. with this and if he gets in front of a jury I think he's going to find 12 folks who are very sympathetic because they would think, what I want these folks in front of my home with that smell, with that litter, and with rodents walking around the front of my house. So...
1: Yeah, I mean, you make a good point that a jury is going to look at this. They're not going to care about what some judge is saying out there about the rights of homelessness. They're going to put themselves in the shoes of this couple that's suing. Erin, do
4: you think this this legal approach could be successful? I'm more skeptical of this legal approach. While it is a terrible situation for those parties that are involved, and I appreciate the nature of it, I will say I'm not so confident a jury is going to sit there and necessarily sympathize with the homeowners or that the law would permit uh, action by the city or permanent action by the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when we had the city clearing out the homeless encampments in front of City Hall, there was a large amount of protest uh, by several individuals in St. Louis uh, City which delayed those uh, those encampments being torn down because it, individuals understand that unhoused the unhoused population needs resources, but also that some of them uh, are are not going to be able to take advantage of those resources. And so there has to be a solution that doesn't just involve rehoming unhoused people. Uh, but it, I think it's also interesting that in December of 23, the Missouri Supreme Court struck down a law that criminalized unhoused people for sleeping on state land. Mm-hmm. So the law was enacted in 2022, which made sleeping on state land without permission a Class C misdemeanor punishable. To 15 days in jail or a $500 fine. Um, so the 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 Supreme Court struck that down as part of a larger bill that it was part of. But I think that this goes back towards the legal footing for a city to remove uh, unhoused people on city property. I don't think it's as clear-cut as, as the petition might allege. Mm.
1: Well, this is going to be an interesting one, and I think anybody who's listened to Beavis when he is on this panel, they know, they know that there might be some fireworks in front of this jury. <laughs> Bill, I, I see you laughing.
2: <laughs> some fireworks? <laughs>
1: So we'll let him fight that in a court of law and not on this panel. But uh, we are talking today to our legal roundtable. And that includes Aaron Luker. Uh, We're also joined by Connie McFarland Butler and Bill Freivogel. Coming up next, Missouri judges rejected a filing that relied on AI uh, to cite legal cases. Does that mean all of us just can't become lawyers and just use Google and start filing briefs? Personally, I'm devastated. We'll be back to talk about that in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio.
0: Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at choosewood.com.
1: Welcome back to our Legal Roundtable. I'm Sarah Fensky. I'm here with three excellent attorneys. That includes Aaron Luker, who is at the firm Sade harper Westoff, focusing on employment law. Uh, also joined by Bill Freivogel, an attorney and professor for the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University Carbondale. And also Connie McFarland-Butler, who uh, is the founder of the law office of Connie McFarland-Butler in Florissant. So I have three really good lawyers with me today. A man who lost a civil verdict in St. Charles County, He's not so much of a good attorney. In fact, he's not an attorney at all. Uh, He's more like me. He ends up doing what is called a pro se filing, uh, where he decides he wants to play lawyer (laughs) for a little bit. Unfortunately, uh, this man made a big mistake when he was doing his pro se filing. He made up the cases that he cited, or rather, ChatGPT did. So according to the Missouri Court of Appeals, quote, particularly concerning to this court is that the appellant submitted an appeal brief in which the overwhelming majority of the citations are not only inaccurate but entirely fictitious. only two out of the 24 case citations in appellant's brief are genuine. So this guy kind of bumbles his way into this. the court did not seem amused by
4: this one errand. Uh, You know, I I think that we all like to think we can play lawyers, (laughs) and most of us try to do it on a daily basis, and it works out pretty well. Uh, But certainly, I will say the Missouri Bar uh, for lawyers has been very keen and uh, talkative of this idea of AI in the law now. It has been one of the president's uh, talking points, uh, and not just AI as it pertains to uh, people pretending to be lawyers and filing pro se motions from ChatGBT, but also uh, lawyers Lawyers relying on AI in their own uh, research and their own citations. Some of the um, aggregate databases like Westlaw and LexisNexis now have AI interactions and interfaces. And so uh, there's a real question, I think, among the courts and among lawyers in Missouri as to where are those lines, where are we drawing lines, uh, what are the implications for people who don't follow uh, what are our legal norms and our legal requirements to make sure that our filings are uh, accurate and and not at all misleading to the court.
1: And so you're saying the, the Missouri Bar has been bullish on AI. They think this is something that, that's useful and you guys should harness the tool.
4: Oh, actually, I, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to indicate that. I meant to indicate that it is a, a an issue that is of concern gotcha. for the Missouri Bar, uh, that it has been uh, discussed in, in several different conferences regarding the use of AI, the, the accurate use of AI, ensuring that you are doing your due diligence as a legal professional to ensure that you are not, misleading the court in your filings. Okay, that makes me feel a little better.
1: I'm like, what is happening with the Missouri bar? You know, I'm in an industry journalism where there's a whole bunch of people who want to replace us with AI, and we're saying, that could be problematic here. Bill, it sounds like AI, based on this brief at least, they are not quite ready to take the jobs of lawyers.
3: Uh, No, not quite. Or journalists, for that matter. I mean, there have been stories all around the country of of lawyers who used AI and and filed false uh, you know false false citations and have gotten in a lot of trouble for good reason,
1: I guess frankly, <laughs> the thing that surprised me the most about this is that the court didn't just catch it. they caught like all of it. Connie, are you surprised that they're reading these briefs so carefully?
2: Well, I, I'm not surprised that they're reading it carefully. Uh, uh, possibly, the respondent in the case, her attorney, ran uh, those uh, cases through uh, CaseNet uh, and/or or Westlaw and determined that uh, uh, that these were not. Uh, Factual cases that they were actual, uh, actually fictional cases, uh, but I think that that was just kind of the icing on the cake. This this gentleman was pro se. It says he didn't timely file his record of appeal. He did not sign his appellate brief. He did not file the requisite appendix. He did not file the requisite statement of fact. Uh, he did not provide his points relied upon. And then he iced the cake with these fictitious uh, case sightings. Yeah. So. Um, um, I, I think that um, uh, that uh, yes, uh, I was going to say no. I'm not surprised that the court actually caught it because there have been a, a whole history of problems yeah. with this litigant in this particular filing. Uh, but I think that the court's ruling in that case, where the court came back and said that this is so egregious that we're going to fine you $10,000. That's a
1: lot of money for a right. pro se. So so I,
2: I I think that you know it, it, the court is you know s- you know sending. Uh, Uh, sending the message that, you know, if you're going to be pro se and if you think you're going to rely upon AI, of course we're holding you to the same standard, but we may cite you for filing a frivolous lawsuit to the tune of at least $10,000.
1: Yeah, I'd say this has ended abruptly my dreams of filing some (laughs) pro se petitions. I am not going to play lawyer. No $10,000 fines. All right. So Courthouse News, they sued Missouri courts over issues involving access they want a victory for public access this was more than a year ago the eighth circuit court of appeals overturned a lower court dismissal of a lawsuit filed by this legal news website that led to negotiations and that's now led to a public access plan so following this plan missouri state courts will place new electronically filed proceedings automatically onto a public website when they cross the virtual counter into the clerk's office I had just kind of assumed that's what they had always been doing. Erin, they they had not been doing that. There were some significant delays here, Courthouse News said.
4: There were delays, uh, and some of those delays are administrative. Some of those delays are purposeful based off of the types of filings that we're dealing with because what the court found, is that, and as the course was arguing, is that there are very confidential documents also being filed. Uh, and so our clerks were taking time and opportunity to review these documents and ensure compliance with the rules that already existed at the time regarding confidentiality. Uh, However with the new ruling of course the confidentiality was expanded uh, and with instant access also comes a a greater burden and need for attorneys and staffs in court to uh, protect the confidential information that is part of these pleadings and has broadened the scope uh, in, in some ways on what we can file and and what people can understand in these filings now. So yeah, this ties in
1: tightly to something, Bill, that your publication, the Gateway Journalism Review, has been all over. Can you tell us what has been going on with access to courts? In some ways, it has gotten better in Missouri lately. In other ways, it's gotten a lot worse.
3: Right. Well, this courthouse news case makes it a lot better. Uh, I mean, the, as the judge, as one of the judges uh, in that case, Erickson, said, uh, For 230 years, you could just go into a courthouse and and look at what was just filed. Uh, I mean, I used to do that as a reporter who covered the courts down at 12th and Market. Um, You just
1: walk in, you didn't have to fill out any paperwork. There were boxes, you just look at what was filed. Yeah. Those were the good old (laughs) days. The good old
3: (laughs) days, that's right. (laughs) Before all this help from from online stuff. Um, uh, But yeah, what what we've been writing about is there's a law that passed in Missouri last year. Uh, requiring uh, lots of redactions in uh, court uh, decisions and court papers, uh, the redaction of names of uh, of victims and witnesses. And uh, this passed right at the end of the legislative session. There was no, I was not able to find any uh, debate concerning it. Um, and uh, it was um, it was part of an omnibus bill. You're not supposed to change court rules. In uh, an omnibus bill, it's supposed to be just you know single issue kind of kind of uh, legislation. But it turned it's turned court uh, decisions into almost being impossible to follow. You know. Police officers, for example, their names are no longer in. That
1: those uh, are redacted. Redacted. Officer one. Everything Officer that G- goes yeah. into the court docket there.
3: Everything that goes into the court, court court docket. So I mean, if we're looking for more accountability for police, suddenly their names are missing from all of these court documents. And they used to be documents. in
1: these files. Yes. This new state law just now lawyers lawyers have to take uh, them out. Y-
3: y- yes, and all and all wi- and of all witnesses.
1: Connie, this I understand has been a big pain in the neck for lawyers, even beyond these issues of. of access that bill's talking about
2: oh oh absolutely you have to double and triple check to make sure that you have redacted the names of witnesses the names of victims if you have any case involving a child the name of the child has to be redacted make sure the dates of birth are redacted do you have any account uh, uh, uh... numbers that may be included do you have any medical information that may be included All of that is on the burden, is on the attorney to redact that information. And so, you know, in the past, where you could quickly scan something and file it, now that adds on another hour or two of redaction, and then we've got to scan in the redacted version, and then we've got to scan in uh, the the full version that has the redaction sheet on it. So uh, it's been a pain for attorneys, and most of us, you know, because we're afraid of the consequences of not redacting we're over redacting in many situations. Uh, I recently had a judge in probate court said, well, there's no need to redact that." And I said, well, it has someone's name uh, and and address on it, and I don't want to be accused of this person being a witness. And I included their uh, name and their uh, address on this particular pleading. So I think there's still a lot of confusion uh, in the legal community about what needs to be redacted and what doesn't but out of an abundance of caution you know I'm I'm blackening everything
1: wow <laughs> Aaron you you've had some similar frustrations with this new system
4: absolutely and I think that in speaking with judges in several different jurisdictions they've been provided guidance to indicate uh, to create local court rules regarding these redaction requirements because they vary so drastically in different jurisdictions uh, but also alarming and concerning, we're not talking about the names of, for example, sexual assault victims. Those were always protected. Domestic violence victims, always protected. Uh, but in the context of civil litigation, uh, you know, a question is out there, can plaintiffs even be named anymore? They're what? technically witnesses. Uh, and there was a publication in several uh, Missouri legal uh, publications in which the question is, can, can, can defendants be named? Can you name a defendant without their name but use their title if it that is, in fact, identifiable. Uh, so you can cast this incredibly broad net if you are following the, the actual words of the law as it's been enacted. But the intent behind that surely can't be the intention of the law. But the problem is there wasn't any debate. Uh, we're seeking guidance, and, and we're seeking guidance from each individual judge. I've been told on multiple occasions, call the court's clerk specifically for that one court and see what their expectations are uh, because it might be different than their neighbor down uh, the hallway.
1: What a mess! And and Bill, hearing you say that this was part of an omnibus, uh, where we're supposed to have single subject bills in Missouri, <laughs> could lawyers challenge these rules and say this is a problem? These are confusing. Yes,
3: <laughs> yes on a, on, a, on a whole bunch of grounds. Uh, you know, um, amongst them that it's, it's a not a single issue uh, bill, but also that it violates the First Amendment. That's what the Courthouse News said in. Their, and their uh, case about uh, you know get the filings out right away. Um, plus, you know the the, the the law, even though we don't know exactly where it came from, um, <laughs> it, it it called in the Missouri Supreme Court to issue rules. It hasn't issued rules, and I mean when I called them up for comment. Uh, I didn't get anything on the record comment.
1: <laughs> sure. Well, wow. So I said, could they sue? You said absolutely, lawyers could sue. Will they sue? Is somebody working on an effort to stop this?
3: Well, I you know, I think it's I think it's quite possible. Um uh, Mark Sableman is the person who uh, who's a first amendment lawyer uh, at Thompson Coburn. Yeah. Uh he called my attention to this whole situation. He on behalf of journalists and broadcasters has sent a letter to the uh, Missouri Supreme Court saying, you know, you got to do something about this. And so we'll see where, where it goes.
1: Well, I feel better knowing Mark Sableman is at the helm. He is such a smart guy, <laughs> such a terrific lawyer. If anybody can get this shot down, it is Mark Sableman. I so agree. all our hopes and dreams are resting <laughs> on him. Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Thanks so much for joining right. us today. And Aaron Luker of Sadei Harper-Westhoff. Thank you. Thank you. And Connie McFarland-Butler of the Law Office of Connie McFarland-Butler in Florissant. Thank, thank you. you.
0: This episode was produced by Sarah Vinsky.
4: Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer.
0: St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists
4: by using music from Life Creative Group.